When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be interviewing Dr. Ariane Knusel about her book titled China's European Headquarters, Switzerland and China During the Cold War, which has just come out in 2022 from Cambridge University Press. This is a really fascinating book that explains how the People's Republic of China used Switzerland as a headquarters for a whole bunch of things during the Cold War, for economic purposes, political purposes, a whole bunch of intelligence purposes, um, as well as kind of being the hub of cultural networks um, in Europe and also well beyond. Um, This is an incredibly researched book using a ton of different materials, um, archives and languages uh, that shows us kind of this combination of two countries that maybe we don't necessarily think about together, um, or maybe not in this context. And yet, um, as Ariane explains for us in the book, there's actually a lot to uncover. So I'm really excited to welcome you, Ariane, to the podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me here um, and for being so gracious about my book. (laughs) You're welcome. Yeah. (laughs) Could we start off, please, with you introducing yourself and explaining why you decided to write this book? Sure. So I'm a historian based in Switzerland. I'm scientific collaborator in contemporary history at the University of Zurich. Uh, sorry, at the University of Freiburg. I've done my PhD at the University of Zurich and I've been teaching um, history and sinology modules in Zurich, but I'm affiliated with in Freiburg. Um, the reason for this book was that I had written my PhD on media images of China in Switzerland, Britain, and the United States. And in Switzerland, there is a second book project after your PhD, which is called Habilitation, and it's supposed to be very different from your PhD. And since I had studied Sinology and I was very interested in in China, I wanted to stick to China in some way. And at the University of Fribourg, there was a research project that wanted to research Switzerland and China in the Cold War. And um, I was able to participate in this research project and I covered political, economic and intelligence relations. And my colleague, Cyril Cordoba, focused on cultural relations. That's why my book focuses strictly on political and economic and intelligence relations. And I'm not really going into too much detail about Maoists or anything like that. Now, um, the the book also is very focused on archival files and and things like that because I had to work in a different way from the PhD. So this is all something that's influenced how I worked in this book or in my research. Hmm. Interesting. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's always interesting to hear about books um, that come out of kind of group projects as well. Um, because that is kind of an, a really interesting environment. You know, sometimes we're always stuck like alone by ourselves having to figure everything out. 
Um, and so I admit being sometimes a little bit jealous of people that get to work in centres and on projects to well, come up with things. Yes. Um, the thing is, though, that for most of the research and the writing of, of um, any papers, I was really on my own because there was lockdown and I had two babies. Um, so I was really, really, most of the time I was I was at home or in an archive somewhere. Mm-hmm. So I did not get to have this, you know, lovely collaborative space at a university where you have a, a lovely community of fellow researchers, unfortunately, although the whole team was amazing. They were fantastic and I enjoyed whenever we had uh, meetings. So that was always great. Well, that's good. I- Given that you've mentioned archives, I'd love to ask you um, about the sourcing for this book, both because um, obviously anyone who does research on or about China, um, (laughs) sourcing archives can often be a sort of tricky thing to navigate. Um, But then Switzerland also is the country of multiple languages, um, (laughs) none of which have anything to do with Mandarin. So I'm wondering if you can kind of tell us a little bit about kind of those, those archives and sources that you were able to use for the book. Sure. Um, yes, as you mentioned, we are multilingual in Switzerland. So when you're doing research in, in a Swiss national archives, uh, be prepared to encounter French, German files, sometimes also Italian and English, depending on who you're dealing with. Um, but also, it's just a topic of, of my book made it necessary for me to look everywhere. I, I literally, I think I contacted pretty much every single archive in Europe to see if they had anything that was connected to my topic. Um, and and also, of course, American archives. I used Chinese archives. And the problem really was that most archives classify relevant files for 30 or 50 years. The Chinese Foreign Ministry Archive is pretty much close to researchers at the moment. So um, I managed to access a local archive, the Shanghai Municipal Archive, and they had some fascinating files. But it's very difficult to actually get to, for example, intelligence files about this period. It's almost impossible. And I only managed to cover this because the Swiss National Archives granted me special permission to look at tens of thousands of files that are still classified today. Um, but I was allowed to to look at them, research them. I'm just not allowed to name people. So in the book, there will be lots of instances where I'm describing people, but I'm not actually using their names. And that's because those were all classified files that I was able to quote from, but I had to um, make sure that nobody could identify these people because many of them are actually still alive. And, you know, people knew that they were spies, for example, that would be a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, in in other countries, it it was really tricky because again, most of the files were classified, but it was it was very interesting. And I I also used books from from all sorts of countries. So I don't know, 10, 15 languages. I can't remember, but yeah, there was loads in there, and it was fascinating. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting. You mentioned the Swiss files that you were given special permission but couldn't use names. Um, I think in some ways that that's kind of a nice compromise, um, you know, for those of us reading it, for I think many of the readers, uh, the inclusion of names wouldn't really make that big a difference. It wouldn't really help, like knowing the person's name wouldn't necessarily help better understand what they did. Um, and But it protects people at the same time. And so the idea of being able to like describe what's happening, um, even with leaving that out in a lot of ways, kind of you don't lose like, analysis or content of the book um so it's interesting that they kind of were okay with that as a compromise yes and i was actually able i've always been able to um cite the the file in the footnotes so if people really really want to know who i'm talking about they could potentially ask for permission to look at that file and then they would get the name so it's well and as we know as academics being able to cite the thing is really the important bit so (laughs) (laughs) that sounds great um so now that we have a bit of a foundation about kind of how you came to the project um the ridiculous number of sources and range of languages that you were able to use um i'd love to do kind of a highlights tour i suppose of the book obviously not in as much detail as the book itself includes 
Um, and as the book works chronologically, I imagine that I'll probably be asking you things chronologically as well. Um, and so the obvious place to start is Switzerland recognizing China, the People's Republic of China specifically, in 1950, right after the People's Republic of China is founded in October 1949. And you say, or you argue that this was a, quote, fairly obvious move for Switzerland to recognize China at this point. Um, And yet, not a lot of other Western countries do. So why do you think it was a fairly obvious thing for Switzerland to do? Well, Switzerland is still a neutral country. And in 1949, Swiss neutrality had been criticised a lot because of the Swiss behaviour during the Second World War and um, at the onset of the Cold War. So the Swiss government was trying to rehabilitate the, the reputation of Swiss neutrality. And for that, it was absolutely crucial that Switzerland had good relations with countries like the Soviet Union um, and, of course, the United States, but also countries like China. I mean, if the Swiss government wanted to be taken seriously as a neutral power and as a mediator in Cold War conflicts, then Switzerland had to have good relations with the Chinese communists. There was no way around that. And the Swiss government was very much aware of that. Um, And then a second reason was that the Swiss government had a policy of, of being extremely pragmatic when it came to recognizing foreign governments. So Switzerland at that time was very anti-communist and the government had no sympathy for the Chinese communists. But that really did not affect that decision because it was clear to the Swiss government that the Chinese communists were in control of most of the territory and it looked like they were going to be in control of it for the foreseeable future. They had managed to establish a national regime. And so it seemed like most of the requirements um, were met to recognize communist China. And um, then a third reason that the Swiss didn't really um, mention too publicly was that the government hoped that by recognizing China, the People's Republic of China early on, Swiss commercial interests in China would be protected and the Swiss, Swiss companies would have an advantage over companies from countries that did not have official relations. Mm. Interesting combination there of sort of internally motivated, this will make us look good um, with sort of some practical pragmatic aspects (laughs) as well, Um, but kind of sets it up clearly for sort of why the basis for this relationship was even possible. Um, And so China therefore opens up an embassy in Bern in Switzerland but again, it's not necessarily inevitable at that point that kind of China starts using Switzerland as some sort of center of economic, political, etc. work. So why and how did China start to use this embassy in Bern as a hub for its activities? So this is a really good question. And it's difficult to answer because what we're missing right now is access to files that tell us more about the discussions among the Chinese leaders in 1949-1950 about China, uh, about Chinese relations to, with Switzerland. So all I have at the moment is files, or primarily files, from the Swiss Federal Police, which is the counterintelligence agency. Switzerland has them. They were essentially trying to spy on the Chinese diplomats. And what they found out was that immediately, after their, their arrival, so the, the Chinese diplomats, they arrive in Switzerland in December 1950. And immediately they start reaching out to the Chinese and they try to recruit Chinese expats. Um, they, they ask, does anybody specialize in, 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 um, in nuclear physics? physics? Uh, do we have engineers here? So it's clear that they start trying to reach out to, to specific people, um, they immediately start having contact with diplomats from all sorts of, of um, embassies in Bern, companies from all over Europe very, very quickly start coming to Bern to meet Chinese diplomats. That happens literally within weeks, all of that. It's not quite clear how much of this had been planned by the Chinese, but it, it must have been to a certain extent because they were ready for them. And they were, the people that they had sent over 
the ambassador, the, the minister, he later became the first uh, ambassador. He was an intelligence heavyweight from China. So there was clearly some idea that Switzerland would become very important. And if we also look at the map of Europe, like if you imagine Europe, then Switzerland is right in the heart of Europe. The other countries that had diplomatic relations with China at that time were all up north. So we have the Netherlands, Denmark, Finland, Sweden, and so on. They're all up there, whereas Switzerland is in the centres. And all of the Swiss neighbours, Austria, France, Germany, Italy, they didn't have diplomatic relations with China. So people from those countries had to travel to Switzerland to meet Chinese officials. It doesn't matter what it's all about. This might have been communist sympathizers, but also business representatives. Lots of politicians came as well, and so on. So this hub function, I think, is, is kind of a mixture of this ideal geographic location that Switzerland has in Europe, but it's also um, influenced by the fact that we have, for example, Geneva in Switzerland. And Geneva is, of course, the European headquarters of the United Nations. We have lots of international organizations there. Um, so the, the possibility or the, the opportunity to spy on other nations is great in Switzerland. And, and I'm, sure the, I'm sure that the Chinese were very well aware of that as well. Mm, that makes sense. And especially with the first person, the first ambassador being an intelligence officer, um, kind of builds that as a base. Um, and I think we'll probably get into some of the kind of beyond intelligence, economic or political reasons as well. You've just sort of mentioned with business people meeting in Switzerland, etc. Um, but first, I wanted to ask, um, kind of moving chronologically, about the 1954 Geneva Conference, um, which was obviously significant for a number of reasons. But how was it significant for Sino-Swiss relations? Well, until the Geneva Conference, China had really been very critical about Swiss neutrality. So the the Chinese leaders, they they were very critical, um, saying that, well, Switzerland is not really neutral. It's an ally of the United States. Um, and, and as such, the Swiss cannot be trusted. And at the Geneva Conference, the discussion changed. So I don't actually think that the, the real feelings of the of the Chinese changed, but the way that they spoke about Switzerland and the way that they talked to Swiss politicians and diplomats about Swiss neutrality changed. And the reason for that was that the Geneva Conference was the very first massive um, or big conference that China participated in. It was the first time that Chinese diplomats and Chinese leaders like Zhou Enlai could present themselves on a global stage. So it it meant a lot to the Chinese and they made a huge effort to to have um, a prepared, you know, everybody had to undergo workshops and get special training to so that the conference participation would go well. And at the conference, Zhou Enlai and 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 um, and others managed to establish contact with, with uh, other politicians, with foreign journalists, with business representatives, and so on. And so for the Chinese, the conference was a success. And it was such a success that it could be used at home in China to show, look, we're changing how China is perceived. China is now seen as, as a main player on the world stage. Um, clearly, our program for China is working. The revolution is the way to go. So if, if we keep this in mind, the, the importance that the conference had for Chinese leaders, for Chinese propaganda, then it becomes clear that even though they still regard Switzerland as a, a Western power, as an ally of the United States to a certain extent, um, they changed their behavior towards the Swiss and they, they credit them with part of the success. And for years afterwards, the Geneva Conference is brought up by Chinese leaders, including Mao Zedong, to say um, that China's grateful for Switzerland for hosting this conference and that the conference showed that China is as peace-loving as Switzerland and so on. I mean, it's really, it's quite fascinating how that changes. What exactly 
why were they so willing to give the Swiss credit? What was kind of special about the Swiss role in the conference from a Chinese point of view? Well, the Swiss role in the conference um, wasn't really anything. What happened was that during the time of the conference, the Chinese decided to really focus on the slogan of peaceful coexistence to present China as a peace-loving nation, essentially. And they then very consciously used Switzerland's neutrality um, to, to stress that we love Swiss neutrality because we are also a peace-loving country. So you see there's a connection between how positively Switzerland was portrayed and um, the kind of portrayal of, of China as a, as a peace-loving nation, this peaceful coexistence, this to, to really spread word about China's program of, of peaceful coexistence. And so by bringing it up later on, you kind of emphasize that idea of like, yes, we're peaceful like you. Yay, let's be friends. Yes. And um, everybody, everybody should take note that, mm. I mean, this was really done in speeches where it was known that foreign journalists would be present as well, not just a Swiss. It was really used to kind of say, we love Swiss neutrality because we are peaceful. Now, everybody published that in their own newspaper and we're good. That's kind of the, the message that they would give. Got it. Thank you for explaining. Um, very interesting sort of setup here that we've got um, in the kind of first decade, really, of Sino-Swiss relations. Um, and I want to kind of continue our progression. But as mentioned, um, think about the sort of economic aspect to this, um, because obviously this is all taking place within the context of the Cold War. Um, and one of the aspects of that is an American-led embargo on exports to China. Um, but Switzerland, unlike many of the other countries around it, as you've already mentioned, does recognize China. There were incentives at the beginning for Switzerland, hoping that their recognition would help Swiss businesses in some way. On the other hand, like I don't think it's necessarily a controversial thing to be like, oh yeah, Switzerland didn't like, I mean, you've said it yourself, they didn't like communism. So there's <laughs> kind of a natural inclination to ally with the United States. So what how does it work to kind of have Switzerland be sort of encouraged to be part of this US-led embargo on exports to China, but also be recognizing China at the same time? How does this sort of economic aspect impact Sino-Swiss relations? This is a, a very, very good question. So the United States put tremendous amount of pressure on Switzerland to join the embargo. And um, it was quite difficult for the Swiss to resist that because the United States was the the main trading partner of Switzerland. So they, they did have a lot of influence. And the number two was, you know, the European Union or European countries. I mean, there was, it was clear that economically speaking, Switzerland was not neutral. Um, but the Swiss government was really worried about the, the, the way that um, a Swiss joining of the embargo would be perceived in the Eastern Bloc countries. Because again, neutrality was at stake. It wanted to be a mediator. It wanted to be um, regarded as an, 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 a neutral power by the Soviet Union, by China and, and other countries. So what eventually happened was that instead of joining the embargo, Switzerland and the United States entered um, a gentleman's agreement. It's called the Hot Slinder Agreement, which was almost like joining the embargo but not quite so switzerland agreed to not sell any war material to china or dual use items so items that could be used for a war in some way but it also continued to allow the export of certain products that were prohibited by the embargo it just introduced quota systems for those so what that meant was that you could buy certain goods in Switzerland that you could not in most of the other European countries and the United States and then ship them to China legally. That was one thing that happened. Um, on the other hand, though, the embargo also had the effect that the Chinese began to use Switzerland as a hub for an embargo goods network. So they actually had networks of embargo goods dealers. So they were... For example, a lot of them were German nationals. There are some Swiss 
many of them were based in Liechtenstein, um, and they would try to obtain goods for the Chinese that could not be bought legally. And they would buy them and then try to ship them to China. And so this was not really influenced by any Swiss behavior. This was really just because, again, we have the embassy with this hub function there. And so they have really good connections to all sorts of criminals that are willing to get these these goods and whatever it is that they need. And um, so the Chinese were very much aware that their phones were tapped. So they knew that phone conversations had to be either coded or they had to not touch on sensitive um, issues. And so it was really crucial that these embargo goods dealers could travel in person to meet Chinese diplomats and discuss whatever it was that they needed. And again, that's why I think the location of Switzerland was so important because it was, of course, a very easy place to travel to from all over Europe. So you have these embargo goods dealers that start traveling to Switzerland and then you have these networks that that several of them then work together trying to obtain certain things and ship them to China. So besides the economic side, obviously the legal and the not so legal um, that you've just described for us, how else was China using Bern in particular um, as a hub kind of throughout this period now that we sort of established it in the 50s? Um, it kind of becomes a solid base. And you describe not just as a regional hub, not just Europe, um, but really more globally, besides kind of this economic aspect, how else was China using it, as you said in the title, as its European headquarters? Yes, so we have also, it's also a political hub. In the 50s, this is mainly um, European politicians um, who want to, you know, from, for example, from Italy and from France and from Germany, who want to speak to Chinese diplomats and, and discuss potential future scenarios. And then in the late 1950s, the whole thing becomes global. We have a lot more contacts with Latin America and with Africa. And the reason for that is the Sino-Soviet split, which begins around 1956. And um, it's essentially uh, a period in which the Soviet Union and China do not agree anymore, and and uh, China starts challenging the Soviet Union's leadership, um, you know, the communist camp, and and China tries to essentially become the new leading country um, in the Eastern Bloc, and so it actively reaches out to European communists, but also to the newly independent countries in Africa, and to various countries and governments in Latin America. And it tries to essentially um, bring them to their side. And this is done uh, through, uh, you know, for example, they do send a bit of money, but most of it is done like they invite people to travel to China. They send a lot of delegations to those countries. Obviously, commercial relations are improved and so on. And these contacts happen um, in a way that Switzerland is involved. So we have, I would say, at least once a week, there is a Chinese delegation that arrives in Switzerland and then travels onwards to Africa or Latin America. This is around 1960, early 1960s. We have loads of people who come in from these countries. They stop in Switzerland, spend a few days there, maybe a week or so, and then they travel on to China. On the way back from China, they stop again in Bern for a few days, and then they move on to whichever Latin American country they're from. Um, this is something we see over and over and over again. Then we also have, of course, loads of Chinese officials who travel to these countries, and they stop in Switzerland for sometimes just a few days to get a visa. Some of them stay for months. And it seems pretty evident that Byrne served as a like a, a place where people would get instructions, uh, people could be briefed, but people would also file reports. So these could be spies, these could be officials, diplomats. They were instructed about 
um, what they had to do in other European countries. Um, for example, even future diplomats in 1964, an embassy was opened in, in Paris, a Chinese embassy, and the, the, the future diplomats there again went to Bern first to, to get briefed on the situation. So we kind of see that Bern is, is becoming a, a bit of a global hub for in the 1960s. And this is all, we've been talking kind of about what the Chinese have been doing. Um, and that's a very interesting explanation just to literally imagine the idea of like once a week, this, these delegations are coming through. That uh, makes it quite real in a lot of ways. Um, but it's not like the Swiss are just passive and kind of, yeah, sure, do whatever you like. Um, or are they? Essentially, how did the Swiss react to Bern becoming this global hub for everything China a lot of things that China is doing, whether it's political work, whether it's trade, whether it's, you know, this not so legal trade. Um, how were the Swiss reacting to all of this? Yeah, they were not happy about this. So um, in terms of the diplomats, I mean, I said once a week, but this is obviously, um, this is really just the, the trade delegations and whatnot. But if you're looking at individual people, so we have, this is why I have all these, you know, I don't know, close to 100,000 files I looked at, because every time a Chinese national entered Switzerland, there's a, there's a federal police file on this person. And so what I'd done is I, I collected all this information and I then began to be able to see that you can, you can then kind of trace the movements of these people. And there's this absolute influx of people. So we have numerous um, diplomats who begun, who come in to Switzerland from China and they stay. Um, hundreds of, of others or thousands even move on. And for the Swiss government, it's just too much because in the mid-1960s, the Chinese actually have almost the, the highest number of diplomatic staff out of all countries in Switzerland. The only country with more diplomatic staff is the United States. I mean, that's extreme when you think about it. And so for the Swiss government, it's like, no, <laughs> we cannot have that. And they... They said the, the main problem for the Swiss government was that China did not provide information about what these Chinese officials were doing in Switzerland. Um, and so the Swiss at first said, you guys have to give us more information. And then after a while, they said, this is not working. You have to replace somebody in Switzerland or you're not allowed to come. <laughs> None of these measures actually worked. So there, there was quite a problem because the Swiss were like, we cannot be seen as 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 a, a center for the Chinese communists, because again, that's going to damage um, Switzerland's reputation in the West. So there is this dilemma that they have to deal with. Um, another problem, of course, is uh, trade changed during this period as well, because the Sino-Soviet split meant that the Soviet Union did not assist China uh, technologically anymore and scientifically. So China now had to get this information and you know technology know-how and so on illegally essentially because of the embargo and so in the 1960s the embargo network the embargo goods network that's operated from switzerland um becomes bigger and the focus on on kind of nuclear weapons or, or products or goods needed to produce nuclear weapons that increases as well so we see a lot more efforts in that respect um, and the Swiss Federal Police is trying to register everyone who's in contact with the Chinese embassy and the Chinese consulate in Geneva. But of course, it's really difficult because you cannot, if people make a phone call, all you have is the, the sound of a name. Um, and if they give you a last name, there might be, I don't know, hundreds of people or thousands with that name in Switzerland alone. If you didn't have a German name, this might be a German person as well. So it's it becomes <laughs> very, very difficult for the federal police to keep track of all these people that are in contact with the Chinese and um, business representatives. Uh, we have um, officials that come in. We have, of course, the, the cultural relations increase as well. We have a lot of communists that want to come to the embassy and the consulate. And, and all these people are supposed to be investigated by the police, but it's just impossible. So that this is really the 60s are a bit of a problem for the 
the Swiss government, it's a bit helpless. There's just too much movement and it cannot keep track of what the Chinese are doing. Mm. I'd love to um, kind of stay on this idea of the tracking and the sort of what's happening um, and look at sort of both sides of it. So um, in one part of the book, you talk about, um, in quote, intelligence with Chinese characteristics, right? The sort of an adaptation of a phrase that we hear a lot um, now. And I'm wondering kind of to understand sort of some of the amazing sources we've already talked about from the Swiss federal police side, um, if you can kind of describe for us a little bit kind of what did intelligence with Chinese characteristics look like um, in this context so that we can then understand sort of, I'll then ask you probably about how the Swiss responded to that. Well, so what we're having is is this idea that in around 1949, the Chinese don't really have a an intelligence agency um, that can operate abroad. It just doesn't exist. And they also don't have diplomats. So what they're doing is they're essentially doing like a crash course for diplomats. And the people that they pick to be diplomats are often either military or intelligence officers, sometimes both. And and that means that this kind of um, the, the diplomats that we have in Switzerland in the 50s and the 60s, among the senior diplomats, there's always several intelligence officers. And um, what they do now is that they reach out to people. So they, they um, try to get information that they need um, quite creatively. This is different from what the Swiss counterintelligence have been used to. Um, and they, they try to do this through, for example, contacting ethnic Chinese. That means so we could be um, People's Republic of China or Republic of China, which would be Taiwanese nationals, but also, for example, people with a Chinese background, so Chinese Indonesians. They're, they're Indonesian citizens, but they have a Chinese background. Maybe their grandparents have been Chinese or um, you know, Chinese Americans, something like that. So all these people are now uh, potential recruits and, and um, they can now be used for China's intelligence activities. That's kind of what, what this slogan um, is supposed to describe. And what we see in Switzerland is that we have lots of different intelligence networks that are then created and operated. Some of them focus exclusively on Switzerland, for example, that we have um, Taiwanese students um, in Switzerland, or another one focuses on Chinese Indonesian students in the Netherlands and so on, or we have maybe um, uh, French businessmen, Italian businessmen, and so on. And then others we have, um, and it's not quite clear what the nature was, but Chinese restaurants in Europe, <laughs> they were connected to the, the embassy in Bern. And then, of course, the very famous ones are the, the Republic of China diplomats that were used um, as well. So there's lots of different intelligence networks that are set up. And all of those bring different information to um, the Chinese. It's quite, quite creative. So I'd love to, before we move on to the Swiss reaction, um, can you tell us a little bit about the uh, China Republic of China Intelligence Network? Because just to clarify, that's the People's Republic of China and Taiwan working together in a clandestine intelligence network, um, which is maybe not what people would expect thinking about Chinese politics. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a bit more about that. As you said, there's a very complex layer of networking going on. There's lots of other interesting aspects of it that I would encourage listeners to read the book to find out about, for example, how the Indonesians are involved. Um, but I would love to ask you to tell us a little bit more about the sort of Taiwanese connection. Right. So the Republic of China, Taiwan, um, was created in 1949. So we have when we have the People's Republic mainland China. And what this means is that some people traveled with the Chinese nationalists who went to Taiwan. They traveled with them to Taiwan and others stayed behind in mainland China. And so in the 1950s and 60s, you have loads of families with some members belonging to the Republic of China, so Taiwan, and others to the People's Republic of China. 
And the Chinese communists, what they're doing is they're now trying to find people who have family back in on mainland China and then use that to sort of blackmail them or pressure them or into collaborating with the People's Republic of China. To give you an example, um, in Geneva, we have um, lots of Taiwanese diplomats because in the United Nations, the China seat belonged to Taiwan, not the People's Republic of China. So you have this really weird situation that in Switzerland, which only recognizes the People's Republic of China, you have diplomats from communist China, but also diplomats from the Republic of China, so from Taiwan. And what the communists are doing is they're, they're contacting these Taiwanese diplomats, and um, some of them have family um, in mainland China, or they want to return themselves, or their, their family, their, their parents want to return to mainland China. And they essentially recruit them as agents and informants. And it's not quite clear how big these networks were, but, but it's clear that we have numerous Taiwanese diplomats who work for the United Nations and and other international organizations, and they often travel to Geneva for meetings. And when they're in Geneva for these meetings, they hand over information to the Chinese communists. A lot of it is UN-related or other um, international organizations. Um, and But they also give them information about Taiwanese diplomats, the Taiwanese government, Taiwanese citizens. So there is a lot of, of um, information that is being um, handed over to the Chinese government or Chinese communists by these Taiwanese diplomats who um, work for the UN and other international organizations. Absolutely fascinating, I think. Deeply, deeply fascinating. <laughs> um, thank you for explaining that to us. Um, and as promised, then my next question really is about um, how the Swiss federal police in particular responded to these Chinese intelligence networks that were, you know, running all over the country? Well, what they tried to do is they tried to figure out who was a spy and who wasn't. And so <laughs> what they did was that everybody who contacted the embassy or the consulate was registered. I mentioned that before. And then they had these people investigated, everybody that they could identify was investigated. It didn't matter if you were... Um, a Chinese student studying in Switzerland, or if you were a Swiss student who wanted to have a little Mao Bible or a lady who wanted to have a map of China for her little church meeting, it did not matter. Everybody was investigated. And then um, they also tried to follow. As soon as a Chinese citizen, Taiwanese from Hong Kong, from mainland China, as soon as somebody from, from these areas came to Switzerland, they were supposed to be traced or tracked um, Chinese cars were whenever possible followed. Um, so they tried to, the, the, the federal police, the Swiss counterintelligence um, agency, tried to um, get information about the size of these networks and the nature of these networks. And it was um, very confusing because usually they only realized that somebody was actually an agent or an informant or an intelligence officer once that person had left the country again. And they also did, of course, there was a lot of collaboration with foreign intelligence agencies, for example, the CIA, then the British authorities, um, Hong Kong, they had um, lots of registers as well. So there's cross checks going on. Do you know this person? Is this person an agent? Um, but it's, of course, extremely difficult. So that was difficult. And then the other problem that the Swiss Federal Police had was that, legally speaking, it could not just arrest somebody just because they were an agent or an informant because the Swiss law was um, formulated in such a way that somebody had to threaten Swiss security in order to count as a spy and um, so they we have numerous cases of people who are known to be informants or agents that had been recruited by the Chinese communists and they travel for example from France to burn, but there's nothing the Swiss police can do. They're watching them. 
if they have reason to believe that these people have received money or illegal publications, then they can arrest them and expel them from the country. But this is hardly ever done. The Chinese, um, even when they know that these are intelligence officers, the Swiss authorities are usually not willing to do anything because any measure that they would have taken against the Chinese diplomats would have resulted in a retaliatory measure against Swiss diplomats in China and Swiss citizens in China, so Swiss companies and so on. So the Swiss government had to more or less, you know, watch it happen, um, except when there was really clear indication that people had uh, violated existing laws. But in most cases, they, they, they watched, they filed reports, and, and that was about it. That sounds like a frustrating task. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I yes, wonder if was- did you come across anything in the archives of just like, damn it, why? Um, I don't know. Don't know what the Swiss Federal Archives look like, but that would be entertaining. It was what was really entertaining is that the, the nature of, of the federal police was so that I mean you have to understand we were talking about less than twenty inspectors that were the Swiss counterintelligence. I mean, this is, you know, it's, it's oh tiny. So you have one or two men who are in, cha- in charge of, of all the Chinese um, intelligence activities. And what they do is they, they task whenever they have um, information that something is going to happen, some informant or agent or officer is about to enter Switzerland. They tasked local police forces with going after these people and just watching them. And as soon as they didn't had evidence, they, they could move against them. But of course, local police forces have other things to do than, you know, following these people. So it would often take several weeks until required information would trickle in. And then you really have, I mean, it's really funny. There's quite a lot of letters where these um, federal police inspectors uh, were just getting really frustrated because everything took so long and they missed it again and the head of, of intelligence in Europe just had a meeting in Switzerland with all these Chinese intelligence officers and we missed it by two weeks you know it's just things like that it's, uh, <laughs> yes it's it's really I mean I loved researching it <laughs> a good archive can just be such a wonderful thing <laughs> yes um, so obviously the federal police worked on this for quite a while um, because as you show uh, Bern stays a sort of regional and global hub for the Chinese um, for a while right we've been talking we've mostly been mentioning the 50s and 60s as dates but um, the, you know the, the title of the book really talks about the Cold War and yet of course um, Bern is not currently a global hub for China so how and why did that stop yeah, so here it gets a little bit um, difficult because I have been told by people who should know that, um, and they're not Swiss. So I've been told by by um, scholars that they had been told or had seen files that Switzerland remained a hub until the 1980s and later, like a main intelligence hub, for example. Um, but in the files that I've seen, um, it, it seems that in the early 1970s, mid-1970s, that's when Switzerland loses most of its um, hub function. And this can be easily explained with the fact that at this time, most of, of your, the European countries themselves establish diplomatic relations with China because the United States and China, they, their relations improve in the late 1960s and early 1970s. And the United States pressure on its European allies grows weaker. Before that, the United States was extremely um, strong in its, its its pressure to not have relations with China, to not trade. Um, cert- if companies traded certain products with China, they were blacklisted by the United States. Banks too. I mean, this, this was really serious. And, and all this kind of falls away in the 1970s. Communist China takes over the China seat in the United Nations. And now it's okay for Western European countries to have diplomatic relations with China. And once they do, Chinese diplomats can travel straight to these countries. They don't need to travel via Switzerland. People from those countries don't need to travel to Switzerland anymore. 
So that's why the hop function is over. But I cannot tell you if that was the case also for intelligence operations, because I, I simply have not seen archival evidence for this. Um, but politically and culturally and economically, the hop function ceases in the, in the mid-1970s, early mid-1970s. Interesting. Answered questions and unanswered questions. <laughs> Um, that kind of therefore takes us obviously to a bit of kind of the end of most of the, the period covered, right? Um, China with Bern no longer being uh, China's European headquarters during the Cold War. Um, but obviously your work presumably is not done. The, the book is out, but I'm sure you must be working on something now or next after this book. Yes. Um, in fact, I there's still quite a lot of questions left for me that I think I need to or I would like to answer. And so I'm working at the moment, I'm working on um, relations in the 1980s. I'm looking at the experiences of, of uh, Swiss companies in China in the 1980s. The reason for that is that for the book, I interviewed a lot of former diplomats, like I, uh, ambassadors that were in China and business representatives. And some of the stories they told me about the 1980s were just absolutely amazing. So I thought I need to, I need to do something about that as well. So that's on the one hand what I'm working on. And the other thing is that we've seen in the past few months, we've seen, a, uh, I don't know, a slew of, of, of media reports on Chinese intelligence operations in the West. And I would like to compare kind of current um, activities to, to the Cold War to kind of explain how have things changed and which aspects have actually been taken over from the Cold War period. Mm. Well, both of those sound interesting. Um, so if either or both become books, please let us know and come back and tell us about them. Um, I certainly, uh, you know, as we said, it's always good to have a nice archive, but um, interviews can also yield all sorts of interesting stories. Um, so I'm glad that you're making use of that. And hopefully we'll be able to, you know, the rest of us will be able to read them at some point. Um, but while you are off doing that, uh, listeners can read the book that we've been talking about, which again is titled China's European Headquarters, Switzerland and China During the Cold War from Cambridge University Press in 2022. Dr. Ariane Knusel, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs>